0: T G I M T M R E. This is episode three hundred and thirty-eight.
1: And it was at the point where, like, I wasn't living. I was just existing. I was just coasting through.
0: Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Odette Kressler. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Rebecca. Rebecca took her last drink on October 22nd, 2019. She is from Madison, Wisconsin, and she is 31 years old. Team, it feels so good to be back doing an intro once again. I missed you. And... It also has felt great to share the microphone with Paul and with Chris. The more I spend time on this journey, the more I see how much strength there is in numbers and how valuable it is to ask for help. We're never done learning. Being able to listen to the podcast on days where I'm not hosting allows me to work on my journey. It also allows me to grow and to protect my energy. It allows me to keep learning and most importantly, it allows me to eat my spicy chili mango while I'm listening. I love our host team, and I hope that you give yourself the chance to learn from all of us. Thank you once again for all the support and love you give us week after week. I certainly don't take that for granted. Before we get started, I wanted to give a shout out to the Chocolate Moose in Bozeman. The Chocolate Moose is a family-owned candy, ice cream, and soda fountain in downtown Bozeman. The Chocolate Moose is one of our sponsors for our upcoming Bozeman Retreat and we wanted to say thank you. These guys are awesome. They make their own chocolates and taffy and I heard that if you check out their shop, you have to try their ice cream float. If you're in Bozeman, make sure to check them out. We thank our sponsors because we are so grateful to companies like The Chocolate Moose that support us and our community. Plus, you all already know that here at Recovery Elevator, Many of us have a sweet tooth, so the chocolate mousse is a perfect fit and we were so excited to learn that they were on board with sponsoring our event. Check out the chocolate mousse 406 on Instagram to see what they sell and if you're not in Bozeman, they can ship goodies anywhere in the States. Alrighty, let's work on finding your better you. I've been thinking a lot about the root of my triggers. I've been trying to really go within and see what pushes my buttons. I recently finished reading How to Do the Work by Dr. Nicole LaPera. She's also known as the Holistic Psychologist on Instagram. There was a part in the book that really resonated with me. I'm totally paraphrasing here, but she shared that one of the deep-rooted narratives that was ingrained in her system was, I am not considered. She narrates a childhood memory that made her feel this way, and that's all it took. That's all it took for her brain to create this narrative, for her brain to believe this narrative and for her adult self to continue to live out this narrative. Living out our past narratives in our current life means sometimes we project. It also means that sometimes we get extremely triggered in current relationships even though the trigger is stuck in an event in the past. This got me thinking and I decided to do a little homework for myself. What are my ingrained narratives? I have a few, but like Dr. Nicole, I feel this thought and belief. I am not considered. When I was 11 years old, I came home from school one day to some news. My parents decided that we were moving to Canada. We were going to pack our bags, sell all of our belongings, and start again, all within a month. One of the things that we were going to leave behind was our house our house that we had been building for the last two years. It was still in construction and I had already picked out my room. I had imagined myself riding my bike in that neighborhood where the house was and I was very excited. I had a vision. I remember being very confused at what I was feeling when I got the news though. My parents looked excited, so I guess I had to be excited? How could I be upset? They always did what was best for us And they always did things from a place of love. I certainly didn't want to hurt their feelings by expressing my discomfort and by letting them know that I didn't want to leave. But there it was, that thought. Why didn't they ask me if I wanted to move? Could have we talked about it as a family? Is my opinion a part of the decision-making? I wasn't considered. Hmm. No wonder I get full of overwhelm and lose my shit a little. Okay, maybe I lose it a lot. When John tells me that he'll be home by 8 a.m. so I can go for a run and it's 8.04 and he's nowhere to be found. Did he even ask me if it was okay for him to be late? Does he know that this run is super important to me? Was I not clear? Did I not say 8 a.m.? You all see where this is going, right? You see how irrational we can get in a matter of minutes as we get swooped in by an old narrative. John walked in at 8.06 with a big smile on his face and my favorite coffee in his hand. Hey babe, sorry, a few minutes behind. I can't wait for you to go on your run and tell me all about it when you're done. Hmm. Insert me feeling like a total douchey nutcase. When we don't know the root of our triggers when we don't know the narratives that are ingrained in our brain and in our soul, we think that something is wrong with us. And when we think something is wrong with us, we feel shame. Part of taking responsibility of your healing is knowing yourself so that you can get outside of the shame cycle and can walk the bridge over to self-empathy. When I know myself better, I can zoom out and see what was happening in my mind during that incident with John. John. This helps me understand myself better and allows me to manage my relationships differently. This makes me navigate my cravings better because mine come when I feel this belief of I am not considered. Can you look within and find some narratives that are living inside of you? Stories that live in the past, yet they're being perpetuated in your present life? We can rewrite those stories, but only until we detect them. All right. Eso es todo. And before we hear from Rebecca, let's hear from my favorite resource on this journey, Café Ari. When I decided I wanted to pursue an alcohol-free life, I knew I didn't want to do it alone. I joined Café Ari almost immediately after I found it, and I was so surprised at the amount of grace, support, and love that was offered to me right away. One of the things I quickly realized was that I had a lot in common with the people in this community— people all over the world with similar feelings and struggles that understood me. Community matters, and lining up with people that have the same goal in mind really helped me stay the course on my journey, especially when I came across bumps on the road. When joining Cafe RE, you get 24-7 access to a group full of others whose priority it is to live an alcohol-free life. These groups are capped at under 400 members to ensure quality connection. In Cafe RE, you'll find that quitting drinking can be fun. For $24 a month, you get access to the community, you get paired with an accountability partner if you request to be matched, you can attend educational online webinars, attend in-person meetups, participate in book club, movie club, and more. You'll also get discounts to retreats and sober travel trips. 10% of monthly fees goes towards our service project, where we work with a nonprofit helping those who have been affected by addiction. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I can't wait to meet you there. Founded by a father and a son in addiction recovery, Exact Nature's all-natural CBD products are specially formulated to help you face the challenges of recovery. Whether this is addictive cravings, depression, anxiety, or lack of sleep, Learn more about what Exact Nature can do for you and how their products can help you. As a Recovery Elevator listener, use the code RE20 to receive a 20% discount on your order at checkout. That's RE20 at exactnature.com.
2: Thank you, Odette. And Recovery Elevator, please help me welcome Rebecca. Rebecca, how the heck are you?
0: I'm doing well. I'm doing well.
2: Thank you for taking the time to join us today. I appreciate it, and I'm excited to hear your story. Can you give uh, listeners an idea of how long you've been sober?
1: Absolutely. So I have been sober since October 23rd of 2019. So my last drink was October 22nd of 2019.
2: That's fantastic. So let me do some quick math. Uh, (laughs) This is my strong suit. We're coming up on two years. How are you feeling?
1: It honestly doesn't feel real it, it feels like it's gone by so fast but also it feels like it's been forever too
2: there's some days where it's like it just happened yesterday and, and then other days it's it's like we've been doing it our whole life
1: absolutely yeah
2: um, well nice job uh before we before we get into it can you tell us a little bit about yourself where you're from what you do for a living family pets and most importantly what do you like to do for fun
1: uh, I live in Madison, Wisconsin. I am originally from Miami, Florida. So I moved from uh, the Sunshine State to the tundra back in 2017. I am 31 years old. I work in training and compliance for a higher education uh, university. I have uh, a boyfriend or a partner, and he has two kids. So I am basically stepmom to those uh, two kids. And then I have the love of my life, which is my dog Mulligan. Yeah.
2: Miami to Wisconsin. That's how you've been there for a little while now. Do you feel acclimated?
1: For the most part, I actually, I enjoy when it gets colder now or before I, I would hate it. And now I just, I, I hate really, really warm weather. <laughs> it's weird.
2: All right, Rebecca, it's time to dig into this. Can you tell us a little bit about your relationship with alcohol, how it started, how it progressed and how you felt along the way?
1: Sure so I took uh, my first drink, I believe I was about 14 years old. I initially I hated it. first time I drank was over some boy that like was ignoring me at school or something and I got into my mom's scotch and I drank it and I got pretty drunk right away and I got like really sad and angry and so I, I really didn't like it. A lot of my friends growing up in Miami, it's a different kind of drinking culture, a different drug culture. So I was kind of the good kid of my friends. Um, My dad was in law enforcement. So I was terrified of of really drinking or breaking any rules. So I kind of dabbled with drinking, you know, here and there in high school, college really just, I, I didn't drink in excess. But I did notice, and I remember having a conversation with my therapist when I was like 20 or 21, like saying like, once I start, I can't stop, but I would drink like maybe once every couple months. So my relationship with alcohol over time evolved. Uh, I wouldn't say that I I started out like it was like the magic elixir when I first drank. Uh, It took, you know, many years for that to kind of happen. But I would say I started noticing a shift with my relationship with alcohol in about when I was probably 25. So I'm not good at math either. So that's like six years ago. So probably about 2015 is when I noticed a shift with my drinking. Uh, And I was no longer just, you know, drinking occasionally, monthly. It was it had ramped up then
2: is there a, is there like a life event that you can, that you can correlate to that change? Or was it just like the evolution of it? Do you think?
1: Yeah. So a lot of my story, I've had some pretty, you know, some would say pretty traumatic events. You know, it's not like I went to war and all that stuff, but in 2011, my dad went away to prison and he's serving two life sentences. And so that kind of drastically altered my path. It was, it was very traumatic that like, you know, my kind of hero had now, you know, been reduced to being in prison. So that was something that had happened in 2011. And then in 2014, I was in a domestic violence relationship. And that I think uh, was a big contributing factor to drinking for sure. Like if I could pinpoint a few things, that would definitely be two of the big life events.
2: That makes sense. And I I suppose during those events, I'm guessing that that alcohol played a role and do, do you think it was helping you to take you, take you out of yourself, like to not feel it? Was that kind of the goal?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it wasn't like right away after those traumatic events, cause I really didn't drink much. Like actually the, I can thank alcohol for, for, I mean, a few, a lot of things in my life. I can thank it for the life that I have now. Uh, I can thank alcohol for getting me through some really terrible times, but also, you know, my ex-boyfriend that was very abusive told me if I had one beer out drinking with some friends that he would leave. And I had that one beer and he left the next day and it was the best thing that happened. But uh, I really didn't drink then. I think it was, for me at least, it was cumulative. So things started to add up, add up, add up. And then around 2014, 2015, I was at a breaking point and I used alcohol to numb. I, I had reached like this max point where I, I just couldn't deal with my emotions anymore. So alcohol was like my savior in a sense.
2: We can only bury so much. And then it's like, it's, it's going to show up and alcohol did its job. It took that away or, or at least made a it- disappear, of course, only momentarily, but it was a a tool. Okay. So we get to around 2015, you say you had, you had like a recognition that it had elevated to the point of being a problem. Did you, did you start to try to work on moderating or quitting then, or did it take a little longer?
1: It took, it took a little bit longer. So I started noticing that in probably 2015, 2016, that my drinking patterns were unhealthy. I started blacking out. I started doing things when I was drinking that I really wasn't proud of. I wouldn't say till about 2018. So fast forward three years was when I really, no, 2017, 2018, when I moved to Wisconsin from Florida was when I really recognized a shift in my drinking. It had gone from kind of like, you know, Friday and Saturday night to daily, all day drinking to a dangerous, like to an extremely dangerous level.
2: Do you think the move was that stressful or did you find yourself in an environment where, where that was acceptable?
1: Yeah. So, so I'd always told myself that I thrived being alone. I thrived like being by myself. I could do all these things on my own. So I was like, whatever, I'm moving from Florida, I'm moving to Wisconsin. I've always been kind of a loner. I'll be cool up in Wisconsin, away from my whole family. All of my family still lives in Florida. So once I got up there, it kind of hit me like I was truly isolated. I was truly alone. I didn't have my support system near me. And I just, I drank to cover that up. And I was bored, you know, all of those, all of those things. So I, I'm a huge, huge animal, animal lover, animal rescue advocate. And I had moved up to Wisconsin with what I consider like my kind of soul made forever dog. I know that sounds cheesy, but our paths had crossed for a reason. And um, unfortunately, she was diagnosed with cancer, and and she was dying when I first moved up to Wisconsin. So after she died in December of 2017, I actually stopped drinking for a few weeks because i i had I had that awareness that me drinking would only make me more depressed over her loss. But in January of 2018, I had an event at one of my coworkers' house where she had a basically like unlimited bar, like a whole. Stacked liquor cabinet. And at the time, like I would only buy myself pints at a time because I knew I would drink it all. And in hindsight, I can see it now. But back then, I knew that if I bought it, I would drink it. And so I was house sitting for her and ended up, long story short, I ended up in the hospital. And so that was kind of like a key point in my journey where it was like right in front of me that my relationship with alcohol was extremely unhealthy. So I had to, I had to take a look at it then.
2: Yeah, that sucks. And I'm sorry. I'm so sorry to hear about, uh, about your dog. I missed. How long had you not drank before, before that event?
1: So I had gone about three weeks at the time. I don't remember it being hard. I don't remember it being like, I had to white knuckle through it. It really wasn't like a conscious thought. It was more just like, I was in such a state of grief that it was the last thing on my mind. I just, I missed her. It just, it really wasn't too tough. Cause I was so preoccupied with something else.
2: Then you ended up in the hospital that night. And I imagine that probably, of course, like raised some red flags for you. Did your, even though your family wasn't with you in Wisconsin, did, did they know about it? Did they have concerns after that?
1: I was basically non-responsive for two to three days. And that's very unlike me. Like if I, I, I like, typically you'll get a response from a text, like within an hour or two, I mean, with the exceptions of being busy. But um, my my mom was really concerned that I had drank that much to hurt myself. There were some concerns, more concerns about my mental health versus mm. concerns about my drinking.
2: Do you feel like there's a tie? There was a tie between those two things.
1: Absolutely. Um, now having some a little bit of time away from alcohol, I I still you know I still suffer from depression. I still have anxiety, and when I I, I see it now. Because when I have these bouts of anxiety or depression, like I covered them up with alcohol. And so remove the alcohol, those issues are still there. And, you know, it, right after I got sober, you know, those, those, you know, depression and anxiety, it reared its ugly head. Like it it was really eye opening. So in hindsight, yes, I believe I was using alcohol to kind of soothe that anxiety or numb that depression, which is kind of paradoxical because depression is stubbing in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. They they correlate. I think so.
2: We remove what we've been using as our as our cure. You know, you said it remove the alcohol, depression, anxiety is still there. Our coping mechanism is gone. I think that's part of the reason it's so tough is because we don't know like we don't know what to do beyond that. Like what what the hell is the rest of this supposed to look like? Do I just have to sit with this for eternity? Or or like is there another way? And I believe that there is. We'll we'll get to that <laughs> get to that yeah, later later in the story. But Okay. So you were taking the hospital, family's a bit concerned now. That was, what did you say? 2017?
1: 2018. So it was January 16th of January of 2018. Sorry.
2: Okay. So January of 18, did you, did you go right back out or was there another, another uh, dry stint after that or?
1: Yeah, there was a dry stint. I was terrified. I was really sick. I, like after that's in the hospital, I was really sick. So I was absolutely terrified of drinking for a few weeks. But then that that thought slowly crept in. And I told myself, well, I can still drink, just can't drink like that.
2: Yeah. Insert rules.
1: Yeah, certain rules. So I would only drink on the weekend. So it would only be on a Friday night and a Saturday night. Um, i tried switching to wine or uh, so i was a, a vodka drinker so i tried switching to wine or beer but i remember this one time i i drank a bottle of wine and i felt like pretty much nothing so i was like i'm gonna go get what i know works i'm gonna go get some <laughs> vodka like this ain't working for me
2: oh it's funny how we we put those things into play like all right different booze only certain days and it's yeah, at least for me, like as soon as I got a taste, like it was so much willpower to try to ma- to stay within that regimen that I had set for myself. And as soon as I would get into it, it's all that shit was out the window. It just, it never lasted. Nope. And then that would, it, again, for me would introduce like this whole another layer of shame because, because I screwed up because I had this standard for myself. And like, once again, I'm not, I'm not doing what I told myself I was going to do.
1: Yeah. And that was, I think that was the biggest trickery that was going on was I would wake up with absolute, like, you know, the, the hangovers, the just complete, you know, defeat. And I would wholeheartedly be like, I'm never doing this again. I'm never drinking again, never going to put myself through this. And slowly, but surely three o'clock, four o'clock slips around. I'm scheming. I'm trying to go, you know, go to the liquor store. So it was like, my brain betrayed me. I felt like, like, I was like, mm-hmm. why, why can't, you know, why can't I think this?
2: Yeah. And then I don't know, somehow we, we attach our identity to our, to our, our, our identity or our worth or, or how strong we are to our ability to, to stick to these things and like not realizing what we're up against. It's not, it's, it just perpetuates itself. Okay. So we've established that the rules and stuff don't work and you were trying, I guess, like a form of moderation after, after your, your hospitalization. How long did that go? Walk us forward from that. Cause we're getting pretty close to your quit date.
1: I was the type, I was a very much an isolated drinker. So I didn't do pretty much any of my drinking like socially. Uh, I did it all in the privacy of my own apartment, my one bedroom apartment. So in 2018, I continued with this this kind of cycle of binging on the weekends to a really unhealthy level and to soothe the loneliness. I really didn't have much friends, I really didn't I didn't have a partner. Uh all my family was down in Florida, so I just continued with this cycle. Alcohol was my best friend. Absolutely hands down like alcohol was who I spent time with. It soothed, you know, a lot of just all of these things that had been going on in my life and I and I don't want it to be confused that alcohol was this great thing, but it was just it it just was what it was. Like it kept me occupied. So I started reevaluating my relationship seriously with alcohol in about January of 2019. So about a year after my hospitalization, I started really thinking about my relationship with alcohol and and starting to do something about it.
2: Not necessarily because of a a particular incident again, but just because of like the culmination of, of all the feelings of the last year.
1: I think so in January, on January 4th of 2019, I was in the middle of a blackout. And um, I'd always, I've always liked to be active, run, go to the gym, you know, do outdoor stuff. But in January of 2019, in a blackout, I just uh, completely turned the corner wrong and uh, sprained my ankle significantly. So much that I needed surgery two years later. Oh no! So it was January 2019. Um, I'm in the middle of winter. I still don't have any support. I still kind of on my own. And I was just in this depression. Like I couldn't walk, I couldn't exercise. And I started really thinking, you know, about my relationship because I was like, I don't have anything else to do now. I started, it, it started, you know, amping back up where instead of it just being on a weekend thing, it went to every day after work at like 4 PM, I would pick up my pint of vodka I would drink until about six or seven and then I would go to sleep early. So I wouldn't be hung over the next day when it started getting better out in Wisconsin. I was like, well, I want to start going back outside, but I couldn't cause I was like tied to alcohol. Like I, I didn't know what to do. So I really had to like reevaluate my relationship at that point.
2: I think it provides us freedom to some extent. And like you said, it, I, I felt the same way. It it, it was my best friend. And I felt like this freedom because I'd have this anxiety over whatever, In, like insert any life event. I'd have this anxiety, start drinking and, and it goes away. And I, and I felt like I had this freedom, but then eventually it, it shackles us. And like yeah. we just said, like, I've got the, we have these visions of like, I want to go do these other things or eventually I'm going to go do this, but we we're so hooked that, that we can't. And then life just slips us by.
1: Yeah. And, and it was at the point where like, I wasn't living, I was just existing. I was just coasting through. I was doing what I needed to do to excel at work. I did really well at work, but I channeled all of my self will, self-determination. So I didn't lose my job, but I was falling apart everywhere else other than work.
2: That sucks. So you, you recognize again in January, 19, it's, it's time to do something about this. What did, what did those beginning stages of like starting to do something about this look like?
1: Sure. So I I vividly remember kind of Googling or, or searching in podcasts for alcohol related podcasts or sobriety related podcasts. So I listened to recovery elevator and that's when the wheels started turning. And so at that point I reached out to my employee assistance office and I started talking to, to them. And, you know, I, I kind of buried the lead a little bit and I was like, oh, all these other things are going on. Like I'm depressed I'm this. And then I was like, but I think I have a problem with drinking. And they're like, why do you think that? And I'm like, because I'm scared to stop. I'm scared that if I stop, I'm going to go through withdrawal. So then of course they're like, how much are you drinking? And I was like, oh, it's not that much. And then I was like, they're like, well, why are you scared of withdrawal then? I'm like, well, I may be lying about how much I'm actually drinking.
2: (laughs) Did you actually tell them that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I've always been really good at tattling on myself. I'm not a good liar
2: at all. What a, like, what a huge step though. It was, did you have a lot of fear?
1: I had a lot of fear with it because I knew once I said it out loud to another person, I would have to really do something about it. Instead of living in this like ignorance bliss that like, I didn't have a problem. I could continue drinking. But like, once I said it out loud, I'm like, dang, I have to do something now.
2: Yeah. That's accountability is kind of that double-edged sword where, it's, it's like a gateway to the freedom because like, once I tell someone, maybe I can start to get some help, but like, Oh shoot. Like now they know. And yeah. And exactly what you said. They're probably going to hold my feet to the fire. Yeah. Were, uh, were they able to provide some resources or did, did you pursue other things on your own?
1: Yeah. So she, she was, um, and I can thank her. I still, you know, she still reaches out to me and just tells me how proud she is of me for getting sober an amazing therapist. She actually connected me with a therapy group in town that is duly certified in addiction and trauma. That was something that was so beneficial to me because I had held all these traumatic events locked away somewhere and I was covering up with alcohol and I needed help. I I needed more help than what I was getting to kind of work through that if I ever wanted a chance at living a, a happy life.
2: You know, I want to thank you, Rebecca, for bringing that up. I think that's a really important thing to note, especially, you know, for our listeners is that, that trauma can play a big factor in our recovery. And and I think it's important for us if if we've been through some big traumatic events to find a counselor a therapist or, or someone to support us who's trauma informed, because it's a, I feel like it's a different, a different mechanism. Like the, the way that we approach it or the way that it's approached with with someone who has that trauma is is a little bit different because if it's not handled appropriately like i, I think you can pull people back into that back into that those old coping mechanisms i, I think it's really really wise to find somebody who is trauma informed so that so that they know what they're doing as as they're helping us
1: yeah absolutely absolutely finding finding a therapist that was you know certified you know with with trauma was so beneficial because there were so many things that i was holding on to that were ways to rationalize drinking. Like I could drink over something that happened to me 10 years ago and I, I would always find a way.
2: There's always a reason. You start seeing a counselor or therapist, Is it? did you start stacking days in? Like, did you recognize that alcohol needed to go right away or? or- Or was that further down the process? That
1: was further down. So I started seeing uh, my therapist uh, in about March or April of 2019. And so I went through the whole intake assessment and uh, they were a week between the intake assessment and then like the results of the intake assessment. So I remember after I did the intake, it was like, okay, I have this week. I I need to drink because I know next week she's going to tell me.
2: It's like freaking spring break.
1: Yeah. Like I can't drink anymore. So she told me the next week that like I met the criteria for alcohol use disorder severe. And I was like, no, no. Yeah. I was like, (laughs) who, no way. And I remember telling that to one of my girlfriends and she's like, are you surprised? I was like, yeah. And in hindsight, I'm like, well, duh. But in the moment I'm like, you know, I'm not living under a bridge. I have a job. I have a, I, I pay all my bills. Like there's no way I meet this criteria. So It didn't really sink in until probably six months later when I really started to like realize like this isn't, this isn't normal.
2: Did you keep drinking after that, the diagnosis or receiving that information?
1: Yeah. So I was, I was on the cycle of day ones. I was on uh, for months. I mean, before then, but um, I would make it my longest stint before I I got sober this time uh, was seven days. That was the longest stint that I had, but I would make maybe two or three days and then the physical withdrawals would, you know, wear off. And then I'd be like, oh, okay, I can go back to this.
2: That's, that's hard. And again, like insert that shame cycle of like every time we don't, don't meet some expectation that we set for ourselves.
1: Yeah. I vividly remember like pouring like vodka into whatever I was drinking from and just looking at myself in the mirror after I did that and saying like, I hate myself. Like, I, I don't want to be doing this. Like, why am I doing this? But I had to go through that to get to where I am now. And I'm so grateful where I am now.
2: That's such a hard place to be. But again, I, I love what you just said. It, I mean, it it takes what, what it takes. It's so freaking cliche, but we all have a different point, but we have to hit that point of desperation to where we're ready to make the change. What was that last point for you? Like what brought you into October 23rd of
1: 2019? So. I was stuck in this day one cycle. I was stuck in the shame cycle that you were talking about. And I was at a point where I didn't really want to live. And I wasn't actively suicidal when I was sober, but I was doing things that I really wasn't proud of. I was really disgusted with myself and not just the alcohol intake. Like I was lying, I was cheating. I was doing all these things and I was harming myself. And that is not something that normal Rebecca would do or sober Rebecca would do. So in October of 2019, I started talking with my therapist about going into inpatient rehab. So going away to rehab for 30 days uh, to to help kind of jumpstart my recovery. And so I kind of toyed with it. I was like, I don't drink enough. I felt at that point, like, I don't drink enough to go to rehab. You know, I was drinking a pint a day. That's not a liter a day. So I didn't need to go to rehab. But long story short, I, I ended up having to go to rehab. Checked myself in October 23rd at the end, at the end part of my, you know, the, the latter part of my drinking, you know, I would drink the night before, and then I would be so anxious the next day that I was prescribed Xanax. So I would take Xanax to get through the day. So when I got into rehab, I was detoxing from both alcohol and Xanax, which is a brutal withdrawal. Zero out of 10 do not recommend. But I had to do it in a safe environment. I had to do it in a medically supervised environment because there's so many risks of detoxing on your own. So the first couple of days were just that physical withdrawal in, in a medically supervised environment. And then once I got onto the unit with a bunch of other um, women, it was it's a twelve step based program. You know, we woke up in the morning, we did a morning meditation, we went to lecture, we did a lot of learning about addiction, we did a lot of learning about you know, healthy coping skills. We had group therapy. We had individual therapy. We had physical exercise. Uh, It was a very structured environment, but one that you could heal into.
2: Was this the first time receiving a lot of that information as far as like coping mechanisms and just information about alcoholism and addiction or had you had exposure to that before?
1: So I had tried IOP before. So intensive outpatient program, which is basically, you know, you go to group therapy, Three nights a week, three hours, or it varies based on state. But I had learned a lot of that stuff about like addiction or alcoholism, etc. But I wasn't ready to listen. I wasn't ready to. I, I wasn't at a place of acceptance at that point. I went in one ear, went out right the other.
2: Yeah, that's. I was going to ask if there was if there was something different about different about it in terms of like information or just just you yourself being positioned to to want it.
1: Yeah, the information didn't change. I just changed. I. I think I was the type of person that I needed to give my brain a break from being saturated with alcohol. I, mm-hmm. I had no chance of really doing anything until I did that, which is what rehab gave me.
2: That's how, I'm glad that you got that. When you went home, how was it?
1: It was, it was, it was freeing. I remember leaving rehab and I remember driving back. And I remember because I was in there for four weeks, so I'd missed four weeks of the podcast. <laughs> so I remember listening to, Scott's episode. Okay. And his episode is just amazing and it was I don't know, I get emotional just thinking about it. It was like I was starting this new life. I I had been given a second chance and I actually listened to my therapist. You know, I actually listened to their advice of of what to do to reach out to someone in AA, to get a sponsor, to go to an AA meeting um or a sober support meeting and it was it was beautiful. It was hard was definitely really hard. I had been in this kind of bubble for a month, but it was, it was, it was really liberating.
2: It sounds like you were at a place where you were, where you were ready to like embrace what a life without alcohol could be or or recovery, whatever, whatever verbiage you want to use versus that, that old thought of, you know, not drinking is denial of self.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I had some of my friends tell me that like, I needed, I needed to get help But until I wanted it, there was no chance. Like if someone had dragged me to rehab like two months earlier, I would have told them to go piss off, but it had, it had to come internally or else I wouldn't have done it.
2: When you got home, did you, uh, did it take you long to find those sober support groups or the, or, or those mechanisms to help, to help keep you on the path?
1: It, it, it didn't, uh, it didn't take long. Um, thankfully the rehab place that I went to has kind of an alumni program. So I was able to actually get in contact with someone that had gone to the rehab I went to that lived in my area. I love that. So I actually called them the day that I got home and went to an AA meeting the next morning.
2: That's so freaking awesome.
1: Which old Rebecca would have never done. I would have put it off for months and months and months.
2: It's so hard to like, to reach out. Right. It's
1: yeah, that a thousand pound phone,
2: yeah. And anybody who's like not to generalize, but like most people in recovery are like handing out their phone numbers or hey, I'd love to have a cup of coffee with you, or a Zoom call, or a phone call. Or and I think most of us like like mean it, we love to talk about it because it's, I mean, that's part of what keeps us sober is talking about it. But for whatever reason, when we're in that struggle, it's like "Ah, I don't want to bother them,
1: yeah. I feel like a burden, I felt like a burden you know and it, a lot of it was self-imposed like it was stuff that i was doing to myself drinking but it wasn't really that wasn't really me like i was sick that's all it was
2: all right so you're you're home you've reached out and we're almost we're almost 2 years away like what does the last couple of years look like for you like what tools have you used um, to give you that 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 sober life that you want
1: the most important thing for me and 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 you'll hear it so many times inside the recovery rooms is connection. I was very much alone before I got sober. And now I have friends that I have a list of people that I want to send Christmas cards to. Like I never had that before. I got really involved with AA right when I got out of rehab. And I had been a member of Cafe RE since July of 2019, but I really hadn't done anything in the groups. I kind of just... You know, skim through the Facebook page, but I really didn't engage. So I started doing AA. I started making a, a local community of sober women. And that was the game changer. Like they gave me the confidence that I was worthy of recovery, that I was worthy of a better life. And then the pandemic happened and it was kind of the gift of desperation where I needed more sober support than just AA. So I started actually getting involved with Cafe RE. And that's been the biggest, the biggest game changer I've met some of my best friends, like if I ever get married, they'll be bridesmaids or maid of honor or whatever. Um, that's been, that's been, what's been keeping me sober is having that sober, like that support system, not, and it's not always, we don't always talk about alcohol. It, it actually rarely comes up in conversations because we're just, you know, we're talking about life. We're having these deep conversations about so many things. So that's, what's been keeping me sober and, and just constantly kind of, Reevaluating, you know, my program or like constantly like, why, why am I staying sober? Why do I want this?
2: I love that you, that you brought up that you guys, that you don't necessarily talk about alcohol that much. I think that's a great starter and like a lot of recovery conversations and relationships and friendships that we have with people in recovery. They start out that way because that's, that's our common, common denominator. But it evolves past that and it doesn't have to be all about the alcohol. It's how's your day? How's your car? Did you watch uh, The Bachelorette this week? You know, like what, what are these things that we have in common with these people? And we keep those relationships open. And then when something does happen, when we do have an off day, when, when we are going through something, we we already have that connection. So it's easy. It It becomes easy to pick up the phone or to shoot a text.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it evolves. It changes, you know, life, life's still happening, you know, like it gets busy with kids. It gets, you know, the pandemic happened, but just having that firm grounding, like if something does happen, like you have someone to reach out to, like, you're not alone. Like I felt alone for so many years and now I don't feel that way. Uh, and also recognizing when, you know, like your recovery, like with me, my recovery or my involvement with recovery needs to change a little bit, you know, at the beginning I was doing a lot a lot a lot a lot and I had to kind of back off because it was you know it was almost like my new addiction so finding that balance is really tricky but you can you can find it if you're putting in the work
2: i think that's just life it's cyclical we're going to overshoot it we're going to undershoot it and just having that willingness to to take a look and be like all right let me do a pulse check am i good do i need to do i need to step it up is it is it okay to back off and and spend a little more time with the family just having that So you're
1: telling me is right when you stop drinking, like everything doesn't become magical and unicorns and ponies. Like I thought it just fixed everything, not drinking.
2: Uh, Sometimes it does. You you get those days every once in a while, right?
1: Yeah. I like, yeah.
2: But it is, it's, it's work, but, but it's worth it. Right.
1: Absolutely. I
2: I don't know. I feel, I feel like I'm at a place and I, I feel like you, like you are too, where it's, where we're able to embrace that. Like we can embrace our recovery. It's not I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like an obligation to me.
1: No, no. I mean, it's something that I think the biggest thing is in, in these rooms or in, in recovery, you can give back. Like I've been so freely given what, what I have now and I want to give back now that I'm in a place to, there was a place where when I was first drying out, I wasn't able to help. I could help by sharing at meetings or whatever. But like now I'm in a position to, to say like, I've been there. It's okay. It'll get better. We're here for you
2: the game changes we throw the word opportunity around a lot i hope it doesn't get watered down but it but it truly is an opportunity to be able to you know exactly what you said show up for others and and provide for them what has been given for us and it's i think it's a beautiful thing that this is a cliche thing that my pastor says all the time but we can turn our mess into a message and and we can let others know like hey that like there's a there is another life out there like we're not we're not stuck in this
1: yeah, absolutely. I, and I've said this, I remember saying this one, like in my first three months, I was like, I can thank alcohol for giving me a second chance on life because I probably would have kept coasting, probably would have just kept doing the same old thing. And now it's like, uh, I'm not the, I'm not a new person. I'm the same person, but now I can actually like explore what I want to do versus just like what alcohol was driving me to do.
2: Rebecca, I've got one more question for you before we head into the rapid fire round. Uh, could you tell us a little bit, about what like what a day in recovery might look like for you like kind of what what's your average day like now
1: so i am the type of person where i know i hear a lot um in the rooms like i have this set routine and i wake up and i do meditation and all that stuff i do not thrive in routine so my day is kind of all over the place but that's what i'm comfortable in but every day i'll meditate at least once a day for a minimum of 10 minutes if it's in the morning if it's in the afternoon if it's in the evening i don't know I I, I try to make sure that I hit, I I, I talk to a sober person or another person in recovery every day. Uh, It happens to just have organically formed into really deep friendships, but I talk to another person in recovery every single day. One thing that I do, well, at least I try to do every day is just, if it's not the best day, is it's never too late to start over your day. It's not a bad day. It's a bad five minutes. So I constantly challenge myself when I get into these narratives that like, this is an awful day to challenge that. But most of my days consist of obviously working um, with the kids, but really just connecting with other people in the community and um, some self-care. If that involves a nap, I love napping. Napping is my thing. I love it. Yeah.
2: All right, Rebecca, we're here. Rapid fire round.
1: All right. All right. Uh, I'm going to have to challenge myself to not be mouthy.
2: (laughs) The, The first one is the most important one. Do you think that Hunter was there for the right reasons?
1: You know, no, no, I don't. I don't think Hunter was there for the right reasons.
2: No judgment. I feel like he was using her though. Uh, For anybody who's wondering what the hell is just going on um, again, like friendships and recovery don't always have to be how many days sober are you today? Did you drink enough LaCroix? You know, have you thought about vodka or beer today? Um, Rebecca and I have formed a friendship. You're one of like several friends who have met over this mutual love of uh, of the bachelor and bachelorette. And that's was this week's episode. Dude went home. And that shouldn't be a spoiler alert by the time this comes out. Anyway, I agree. Not there for the right reasons. No. All right. The real first question. What was one of your biggest fears as you were thinking about quitting drinking?
1: I think my biggest fear was the fear of the unknown. Uh, I got really comfortable with being in the sad, depressed state. So I was really fearful of what my life could look like without it. Like happiness or joy really scared me. So I think the fear of the unknown was the biggest thing. Like what I, I I was very comfortable, very familiar with, like, I knew I was going to expect a hangover. I knew I was going to expect sadness. So I think that's, that's the biggest thing.
2: Yeah. I heard a guy at a meeting one time say that we, we become comfortable swimming in our own shit we know what it is. We know how it feels. Yeah. Uh, Number two, the the, kind of the opposite of that, what is a positive that you didn't expect in your life without alcohol?
1: I didn't expect to have so many deep, meaningful friendships. I didn't expect that I would get that. I thought that I would just get sober and I would exist, but I found people that are like my soul friends that I connect with. And like, just off of one conversation, I'm like, you're going to be my best friend. And that's something that I just didn't expect at all.
2: It's a beautiful thing. It really is. What is your plan in sobriety moving forward?
1: Continue putting in the work. Um, I continue to work with my therapist to kind of resolve some of my past traumas, past relationships, to just continue reaching out for help. Stay humble. Know that I don't have this. I don't have this figured out. You know, time away from alcohol doesn't equate. Like, I've got it all figured out. So just to constantly kind of continue putting in the work, keep connecting with people, keep challenging myself and others.
2: Nice. Uh, In regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received?
1: Keep it simple. That is something that I've really struggled with for a while. My first sponsor told me that like, especially in the beginning, keep it simple. Don't, don't go like run 10 marathons and, you know, give up sugar and stop, you know, just keep it simple and put one foot in front of the other. And if your head hits the pillow and you're sober at night, you have done a great job.
2: Exactly. What parting piece of guidance can you give to our listeners who are in recovery or thinking about getting sober?
1: Parting piece that I would give to someone that's thinking about um, getting sober and recovery is to just be kind to yourself and to believe in yourself and to trust yourself. And if you're thinking that you may have a problem with drinking, lean into that, lean into that, into your own comfort, you know, do it at your own pace. And, and, And over time, you'll start to believe and trust in yourself. And you'll find over time that you're worthy of recovery and that you're worthy of a better life without alcohol.
2: You are worthy of it. And last, but certainly not least, Rebecca, give listeners your favorite, you might need to ditch the booze if line.
1: You might need to ditch the booze if you buy a liter of vodka, you start drinking it and then you're like, no, I don't want to drink this anymore. You pour it all out, but you start getting buzzed and then you're like, no. I need, I need it. So then you go back to the same liquor store to where you went before and
2: get some more. That'll happen.
1: Or you might, my other one is if the people at the liquor store all know your name and what you're getting and know your dog's name.
2: There's a little familiarity there. We need to, might need to slow down. Rebecca, thank you so much for your time today. You got an amazing story and I appreciate you sharing it with us. Uh, Thank you so much.
1: Absolutely. I so appreciate uh, the podcast. And I just love
2: being on this journey with all of you. All right, sister. I love you. Have a good day.
1: Love you more.
2: Bye. Recovery Elevator, thanks again for having me. And a huge shout out to Rebecca. You killed it, sister. We record the podcast a little early, but God willing on the day that this airs, it will be my soberversary. I will have four years of continuous sobriety. I wasn't sure if I wanted to talk about it, and I started to question that feeling. I think it's important to stay humble, but why the fear of celebrating myself? A quote by Marianne Williamson came to mind and I wanted to share it with you. Our greatest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness that frightens us most. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, Who are you not to be? Your playing small does not serve the world. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. I want to encourage everyone listening to take some time and recognize the work that you're doing. Whether you're on day one, day 1000, or somewhere in between. Even if you're listening, trying to figure out the next steps. Even if you're searching for that day one. You're in it, and I'm proud of you. I want you to resist that urge to minimize yourself, to make yourself small. You are more than alcohol. You're a gift to this world. You're valuable, and you deserve happiness. Take some time. Write the words down. Say the words out loud. Breathe, and let yourself feel it. Embrace it. So with that, to future Chris listening to this, happy four years, dude. Nice job. You're doing great. Recovery Elevator, it all starts from the inside out. I love you guys.
3: How do you know this is the experience you need? Because this is the experience you're having at this moment. In the seeing of who you are not, the reality of who you are, By itself, life isn't as serious as my mind makes it out to be. Being must be felt, it can't be thought. Your inner purpose is to awaken. world with words and labels, a sense of the miraculous returns to your life that was lost a long time ago when humanity, instead of using thought, became possessed by thought. The word I embodies the greatest error and the deepest truth, depending on how it is used. In normal everyday usage, is the primordial error, a misperception of who you are, an illusory sense of identity? This is the ego.